0: Special event in the life of our church is planned for next Lord's Day. We will be formally recognizing and setting apart our brother Randy to the office and work of the ministry here as a pastor of Providence Reformed Baptist Church. In the morning worship, I will preach a message charging you, as the members of this church, with your duty to your new pastor. And then after our fellowship lunch, Pastor Chansky, whom Randy has invited, will preach the charge to Randy, advising him of his duties to this church. And after the conclusion of that message, a formal ceremony of ordination will take place, officiated by Pastor Chansky and myself, in which Randy will be formally installed As a pastor of this church. So in preparation for that solemn and joyful event, I seek to bring a message here to answer some questions about ordination. Ordination. What is it? What is its biblical warrant? What is its confessional support? And next Lord's Day, what will it look like here so let's do a, an overview, a study of ordination this morning to be prepared for what is to happen in our midst next Lord's Day. So the very first point this morning is just to answer the question of, of ordination. What is it? Maybe you've heard that word before and you don't fully understand what it might mean. You might have some ideas as to what it is. Well, one definition that I think hits pretty close to the mark is that ordination, as the term has been generally used in the history of the church, is the ceremony by which an individual is set apart to an order or office of the Christian ministry or in a Christian church. Now, you might have heard that term, set apart to an order. we We're not a liturgical church. We're not Anglican. We're not Roman. We don't believe in holy orders in the way that they do. But we believe that there are to be men set apart formally for various offices in the church, specifically the office of deacon and the office of elder. And though formal... Ordination involves a ceremony, and ceremonies are viewed with suspicion by some evangelical Christians today. What the ceremony represents requires us to take ordination seriously. Ordination to an office in the church represents sober responsibilities both for the man being ordained and for the flock over which he is being ordained. Ordination, when viewed biblically, is serious business. Ordination is to be taken seriously, first of all, because it recognizes that It is God that ultimately calls and equips men to serve His church. This is clearly in Paul's mind as he soberly warns the Ephesian elders in their duty to watch over themselves and over the church. Why? Because it belongs to God as purchased by Jesus Christ and overseen by the Holy Spirit. Acts 20 and verse 28. Paul says, be on guard for yourselves, You've got to watch yourself first, and for the, all the flock, yourself and the flock you're to watch over, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Ultimately, it wasn't I as an apostle that made you overseers. It was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, it belongs to God, which He purchased with His own blood. The Son of God purchased the church with His own blood. Therefore, you are to take very seriously your responsibility. You are to guard yourself. You are to guard the church. Secondly, ordination is to be taken seriously because overseers are answerable to Christ for how they carry out the stewardship that has been entrusted to them. Hebrews 13, and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You see, they're watching over the purchased property of Jesus Christ. And they're going to have to give an account before God on how they shepherded His blood-bought people. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Thirdly, ordination must be taken seriously by the church and by the man being ordained because his ministry will spiritually and eternally impact the souls of his flock. Again, listen to Paul as he defends his faithfulness to men and God in the discharge of his ministerial responsibilities as a preacher of the Word of God. Again, Acts chapter 20, this time verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day. He preached in season and out of season. He preached publicly and from house to house, at times with tears. Therefore, I testify to you this day. He's making the statement as under the eye and in the ears of God before these men. He's putting himself in the dock and he's testifying in the presence of God, before these Ephesian elders. Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all men... Well, Paul, how can you say that? Well, he was faithful to the charge that was given to him as an apostle. How can he say that he's innocent of the blood of all men, that he's not going to be chargeable for being unfaithful to their souls? For, here's a reason why he can say that, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of the whole counsel of God. What was in the book, I told you. I preached to you. I didn't hold back anything. And therefore, I'm clear of your blood. It's your responsibility to take the things that you've heard. That you've heard from my mouth. in my faithful discharge of my duties. And you're to obey those things. And if you obey them, you live. But if you don't obey them, you die. My blood is not on your... They, your blood is not on my hands. Fourthly... Ordination must be taken seriously by the officiating pastors on behalf of the church, so that they do not incur sin by hastily placing a man into the pastoral office. Paul says to Timothy that he's not to be a novice. He's to be a man of proven character, of godly conduct, Better to have no pastors than to have the wrong pastors. First Timothy five and verse twenty two. Paul says to Timothy, "Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin." Well, Timothy says, "Paul, there are there are needs in churches. There are churches that have been formed that don't have pastors." Paul says to T- Timothy, Don't be too quick. Lay hands upon no men hastily. Don't do that. Because if you do, you're sharing in the sins of others. The wording of our church constitution recognizes these sober realities. Under the article office bearers and the appointment of office bearers, the general statement reads. "...the appointment of elders and deacons is the prerogative of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. However, he has ordained that each local church exercise the responsibility of recognizing those whom he is furnishing to be elders and deacons in that particular church." The Lord's appointment of an individual to either of these offices is recognized by means of that individual's possession of those graces and gifts required by Scripture. And Paul lays them down both in First both in, uh, Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. <clears throat> required by Scripture for the particular office, and his own conviction that the Lord is calling him to minister in that office. The recognition of office bearers is a matter of such importance that it should never be undertaken without much prayerful waiting upon God, an honest perusal of the relevant passages of Scripture, and a frank evaluation of those who are being considered." Each member of the congregation has a spiritual responsibility to be intelligently informed regarding these matters. So our Constitution recognizes the very sobering reality. And the mat- it's a matter of such importance as how it is put in our Constitution. Now, before concluding this point, a few words of qualification may be in order. It is important in our day of widespread biblical ignorance, disturbing doctrinal downgrade, and general confusion in the church about such matters as ordination to understand what ordination is not. First of all, ordination is not the conferring of supernatural gifts upon the man that is being ordained. Now it's true, and we're going to see that the Apostle Paul conferred spiritual gifts upon Timothy at his ordination, but such gifts are no longer bestowed by the laying on of hands in ordination today. And I suggest to you that even in Paul's day, such extraordinary gifts of the Spirit were not bestowed universally, but rather particularly upon only certain individuals. The church now established, and with a completed Bible, no longer has apostles, and therefore no need for extraordinary spiritual gifts to authenticate the message or its messengers. We don't have apostles and prophets in the church today. God the Holy Spirit does bestow His ordinary gifts, and He does this by ordinary means, equipping a man to minister the Word of God, which is the faith once for all delivered to the saints in the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, ordination to the office of elder is not opened to women. No matter how gifted they may be in teaching or in administration, God has not appointed women to this office, not to leadership within the church. And we were reminded that, of that this last Lord's Day when I read the qualifications of an elder from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. God has not called women to serve as overseers in His church, notwithstanding the loud feministical voices clamoring today, even among some evangelical churches, for women pastors. It's nowhere to be found in Scripture. In fact, it's spoken against. Thirdly, ordination is not the granting of independent authority... "...from Christ, nor does it elevate the pastor above the authority of the church which he serves, and to which he must also submit to the body." He must submit to the body of Christ. You see, the shepherd is also a sheep. And therefore he is also under the authority with the other sheep of the chief shepherd." His authority comes from Christ and extends no further than a right interpretation and application of Christ's word in his preaching and in his pastoral duties. A pastor possesses no independent Authority. He is subject to the same liabilities and responsibilities, as well as to enjoy the same privileges and blessings as the other members of the church, in addition to his great privilege and awesome responsibility of shepherding God's flock, entrusted to him, which is represented in his ordination. So we've considered briefly what ordination is is Secondly, let's consider its biblical warrant. Is does the Bible warrant the ordination of men to the office of the elder and deacon? Does the Bible command that Christ's local churches ordain elders by means of a formal ceremony? Although we find no explicit command for such anywhere in the New Testament, we are presented with instructive and authoritative examples that strongly suggest imitation by Christ's local churches. Now it goes without saying that only those men whom the Lord has obviously graced and gifted are to serve as shepherds in Christ's church. Only they should be ordained as elders. It's not a popularity contest. It's not because of you being in the church longer than everybody else. Those kind of matters, they don't enter in to the choice of elders for the church. But furthermore, the man himself Should possess such a desire. Paul makes this plain in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And the church, especially its elders, have a sacred trust committed to them to raise up such men. So Paul instructed Titus and Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, you heard from me what you're teaching. You teach other men, and they're to teach other men as well, so that they can teach other men, you see. So Paul writes to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city As I directed you. Though the preparation of qualified men for the eldership is especially the duty of a church's pastors, the congregation also has a hand in the choice of qualified men for the eldership. And this is clear from several events in the history of the church recorded in the book of Acts. First of all, look at Acts chapter 1 as it records the infant Jerusalem church choosing a replacement apostle for Judas who had betrayed Christ and committed suicide. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer and Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons uh, was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us. And received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So that in their own language, that field was called Hachaldimah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another take. It is therefore necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was taken up from us, One of these should become a witness with us of His resurrection. In other words, we need to fill Judas' vacated spot. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Well, notice how the church, and not just the apostles, the 120, and not just the 11, chose a replacement for Judas. First of all, the choice of Judas' replacement took place in the context of corporate prayer, and it demonstrated the single-mindedness of the whole congregation. Verse 14. Secondly, the decision to replace Judas was guided by the leadership of the infant church, namely the apostles and Peter in particular, in verses 15 through 20. Thirdly, the qualifications for Judas' replacement are given, and two possible replacements are proposed in verses 21 through 23. Now, the plural verb they in verse 23 may well have included more than the 12 or the 11 apostles, probably the whole 120 members of the church, of whom Peter was the spokesman. Fourthly, the church prayed for God's guidance, and the Lord chose by lot Matthias. Both men were equally qualified, they didn't know which one, they cast lots, and the Lord's determination was made by the lot falling to Matthias. So we see here the church was involved in the choice, even of a replacement apostle. Second, let us look at Acts chapter 6 and the ordination of men who became the first deacons in the early church. Their ordination serves as an apt model for the ordination of elders. Well, a problem in the church needed to be addressed. It necessitated the raising up of qualified men to meet a pressing material need in the church so that the apostles could be free to carry out their primary responsibility and duty of prayer and ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 6, be reading verses 1 through 6. This shortly after Pentecost, the church is growing, is experiencing growing pains. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews that is the Greek-speaking Jews that had been brought to faith in Messiah because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the... Spirit and, uh, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these They brought before the apostles. After praying, they laid their hands on them. And we'll stop there. Well, notice the manner in which the church chose and the apostles ordained these deacons. First of all, the men chosen to serve as deacons were recognized as proven godly men. They were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. We see this in verse 3. Secondly, the congregation was exhorted by the apostles to select seven qualified men. You see this as well in verse 3. And these chosen men were presented, chosen by the congregation, presented to the apostles to serve as deacons. We see this in verses 5 and 6. And then, after prayer, and by the laying on of their hands, the apostles, as representatives of the congregation, ordained these selected by the congregation to serve as deacons. Finally, or next, let us consider the instructive example of ordination found in Acts chapter 14. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 19 through 23. Paul's preaching, so is Barnabas. they creating a ruckus, especially among the Jews who weren't embracing Christ. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So ordination, whether of a replacement apostle or of deacons, involved the choice of the congregation. We've seen that much so far. We should not be surprised that such was the case with the ordination of elders as well. And this is apparent from verse 23. Qualified men were selected by the church, who were then formally installed in the office of elder to serve the church. And brethren, we should suppose that what is recorded here was the apostolic pattern for ordination in all of the churches. We would be misreading Acts 14:23 if we were to assume that the verb translated "appointed" there referred to the formal laying on of the hands. A.T. Robertson shows how this Greek word indicates that the church chose the elders. The meaning of the word "appointed" refers not to formal, a formal ordination ceremony by the Apostles, but the election that was indicated by the raising of the hand of the members of the Church. Robertson says this word for ordain, it means to stretch forth the hand. It's a compound word. He says it originally meant to vote by a show of hands, finally to appoint with the approval of an assembly that chooses as in Acts, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 19, where they chose, they appointed certain men to carry the gift to the churches in Judea. The church appointed them, stretched out their hands, they voted for them. And then to appoint without regard to choice, as Josephus uses it, of the appointment of Jonathan as a high priest by Alexander. He goes on to say, But the seven deacons were first selected by the Jerusalem church and then appointed by the apostles. That is probably the plan contemplated by Paul in his directions to Titus, chapter 1 and verse 5, about the choice of elders. It is most likely that this plan was the one pursued by Paul and Barnabas with these churches. They, that is, the churches, selected the elders in each instance, and Paul and Barnabas ordained them. So we see a pattern developing here, do we not? pattern for ordination ceremonies. First of all, the church recognizes qualified men that possess the required gifts and graces for the office for which they are being considered. Secondly, these men are formally appointed to those offices by the leaders of the church as representatives acting on behalf of the body. Thirdly, since ordination is a serious matter, it is solemnized by fasting and prayer, in which the elders are commended to their office and work. The sacred ritual of ordination occurred not just in the ordination of elders, but also of missionaries. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. And here Luke records the installation of Barnabas and Saul as missionaries to be sent out by the Antioch Syrian Church. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, and then their names are given, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while these were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So, here we have the ordaining of seasoned teachers as missionaries. Notice some similarities and differences between this ordination and that of Acts chapter 14. Unlike the elders ordained in Acts 14, Barnabas and Saul were already seasoned ministers. They were serving as prophets and teachers in the churches and particularly there in Antioch. Likely both men had been preaching and teaching for the last 10 years, so they weren't novices. They weren't new men. They were proven. These teachers were ordained as missionaries to be sent out by the church, verse 1. Secondly, It was while these men were engaged in public ministry, they were engaged in ministry and fasting, that the Holy Spirit somehow made His will known to the church of His choice of Barnabas and Saul for this missionary enterprise. Thirdly, the Antioch church commissioned these men for their missionary work after praying and fasting and by the laying on of hands. Probably some of the church's leaders acted as representatives of the church at this formal commissioning ceremony in verse 3. Finally, the church in response to the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to the church and through the church, pointing out, choosing these men. And the church in response by the direction of the Holy Spirit sends out these men to the ministry to which they were called. Now two other texts in the New Testament speak of Timothy's formal commissioning to minister in the Ephesian Church as Paul's apostolic representative there. And in that ceremony, Paul and the elders of the Ephesian Church laid hands upon Timothy. Look first of all at First Timothy four and verse 14. First Timothy 4:14. 4, Paul says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Timothy was something of a shy man, somewhat diffident. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. You see, there was a formal ceremony in which Paul's hands, likely, the hands of the presbytery anyway, were laid upon Timothy, and it was bestowed the spiritual gift of prophetic utterance upon him. Paul re- repeats this theme in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 6. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you, notice, through the laying on of my hands. It was the hands of the presbytery earlier. Now it's Paul's hands. It was both when you put them together. Hands were laid upon Timothy at his formal commissioning there as Paul's apostolic delegate in the Ephesian church. Now, two observations are to be made here. First, church elders, as well as the apostle, were involved in Timothy's formal ordination service. It was the leaders of the church that laid hands upon him. Second Timothy was invested with a prophetic gift at his ordination by the laying on of the hands of the Apostle Paul and the presbytery. Yet the laying on of hands is appropriate today nevertheless. As I stated earlier, when hands are laid upon a man being ordained to the eldership, A gift, a prophetic gift is not conferred upon Him. But yet, it's appropriate nonetheless. You see, communicated in that solemn solemn ceremony by the laying on of hands is a symbolic transfer of authority to the candidate. As a steward who is under Christ's authority in the ministry of the Word, recognized by the congregation, the men laying hands upon Him, acting on their behalf. Speaking of the solemn rite of laying on of hands one man writes regarding the ordination of Saul and Barnabas in Acts 13 he says this rite to an israelite suggested grave and hallowed associations when a jewish father invoked a benediction on any of his family he laid his hand Upon the head of the child, when a Jewish priest devoted an animal to sacrifice, he laid his hand upon the head of the victim. And when a Jewish ruler invested another with office, he laid his hand on the head of the new official. The ordination of these brethren possessed all this significance. By the laying on of hands, the ministers of Antioch implored a blessing upon Barnabas and Saul and announced their separation or dedication to the work of the gospel and intimated their investiture with ecclesiastical authority. That is, with the authority to carry out their ministry in the church by the church. So let's recap what we've seen. First of all, church congregations were involved in the choice of office bearers and in their ordination, in choosing a replacement for Judas, in selecting deacons, in showing their choice of the ordination of elders and of missionaries. Secondly, churches engaged in prayer and fasting in the process of selecting and then ordaining pastors and missionaries thirdly apostles apostolic delegates such as timothy and titus and pastors were involved in the formal ordination ceremonies of new pastors by the laying on of hands signifying the conferring of pastoral authority And I suggest to you that churches today that seek to be biblical and apostolic will follow this example in their ordination of office bearers, be they deacons or elders. Third question, much more briefly, ordination. What is its confessional support? Well, we noted that our church's constitution speaks to the subject of the ordination of office bearers. And it does so because this ceremony is found first in the Bible, and secondly, it's summarized in our confession of faith. Our confession addresses the subject of ordination. If you happen to want to look, page 684 in your Trinity Hymnals, chapter 26 of the Church, paragraph 9. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit unto the office of bishop or elder or pastor, all three of those are used synonymously, in a church, is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage, not the common suffering, You put wrong men in the office, it will be common suffering. But this is common suffrage. This is by the vote. That's what suffrage means. By the common suffrage of the church itself, and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer, with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church. If there be any before constituted therein, that is, if, if the church already has elders, it's to be those elders. And of a deacon, that he be chosen by the like suffrage, by vote, and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. Brethren, the ordination of elders has been the standing practice of churches organized according to Reformed and Baptist principles down to our day. And that we continue to uphold that practice in biblical tradition, I trust, God willing, next Lord's Day will be evident. And that brings us finally, ordination. What will it look like here next Sunday? Well, in the morning service, I will preach a charge to you from the Word of God. To you, the members of this church, regarding your duties to your new pastor. And then after fellowship lunch, in the afternoon, Pastor Chansky will preach a charge to Randy regarding his duties as a shepherd of this congregation. And immediately following the conclusion of Pastor Chansky's message, Pastor Chansky and I will officiate in the ordination ceremony as representatives of this church in conferring upon our brother the title and symbolically committing to him the authority of Christ as a pastor in carrying out his responsibilities that are incumbent upon him in taking up that sacred office. So reads our Constitution on the procedure of appointment. The recognition of those whom the Lord is furnishing to bear office in this church is carried out in three steps. Nomination... That's already happened. Election, that took place back in November. And ordination, God willing, next Lord's Day. Ordination. Following the election of an officer, there shall be a portion of a regular worship service set aside, at which time the officer shall be ordained by the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 1 Timothy 414 this solemn act should always be accompanied by the special prayers of the whole church, Acts 13.1 and 14.23. So here's the application. You're saying, well, what does all of this mean to us? Well, how should I prepare, how should you prepare for next Lord's Day? This sacred and solemn and joyful event in the life of our church an event that's been prayed for and sought for the last 33 years, a second elder. Well, if we were to follow the New Testament model, in Acts chapter 13, we will be praying and even fasting between now and next Lord's Day, taking a a meal or a day even, if you wish, set aside from eating to feel the ache of your belly urging you to spend time in prayer, pleading for God's blessing upon the man and upon this church. To pray for Randy as he assumes this sacred office, that he would be filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit, already seeing his gifts and graces, that they would be improved through his ministry of the Word over time, as Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gift, that that would be done. To have the heart of Christ in shepherding the flock that's been purchased by his own blood. To be an approved workman in his pulpit labors. To be a man of prayer. And pray that the Lord would come down and crown next Lord's Day's services with a sense of his blessed presence. That we would see that there's something going on here beyond just a formal ceremony that Christ is here and one of his gifts to the church is being recognized and conferred to the body. Let's ponder these things. Let's be praying for and even fasting as we prepare to come next Lord's day prepared. Let's pray. Our Father, how clear it is in your word that elders are to serve your churches, they're to possess gifts and graces requisite for that ministry, as stewards entrusted with shepherding the flock, entrusted to their care, that they are to be recognized by the congregation, they're to be formally placed in the office, solemn and, and, and solemnity and joy, We pray for Pastor Chansky even now as he prepares to preach the charge in in the afternoon, myself in the morning. And for our brother Randy, upon whose shoulders hands are to be laid, having given him gifts and graces and fitting him to the ministry and working in the hearts of your people, the Holy Spirit, as it were, through their hearts and through their mouths and through the raising of their hands, Calling him to serve in this church. Oh, how we pray that the the blessing of, of ministry of this church will be more than doubled, that there would be a holy synergism in the the efforts, ministries, prayers, labors of of these two pastors, to perform work that hasn't been able to be done in the past. That your people would be better blessed uh, by the work of of a plurality of elders in this church. So Lord, we, we pray that we would know your blessing in anticipation, be praying for it, that you would open the heavens, you'd come down and you would crown next Lord's day's ministries and the ordination service itself with a sense of your, your blessing and your favor and your pleasure. For we ask these things in the name of the great shepherd of the sheep who loved us and gave himself for us and has raised up ministers to serve and to feed his flock.